You are listening to Written on Water, a podcast about death, life, and all the layers in between. I believe that by learning how to die well, we learn how to live and love completely. So listen and learn. Hi, listeners. As a caregiver to my brother, Tomas, I came upon so many heartbreaking revelations. One of them, and one of the toughest, I would say, was to see my brother trapped in a body that would no longer function and cease to give him an iota of independence. It was just so sad. And in the end, it was as if we were watching him and waiting for him to die instead of hoping for life. And due to his brain tumor, dementia set in, and he had no options because of that but to suffer. But there are options for terminally ill patients who want to be empowered. And that's why today I've invited Erica Ruiz, the public outreach manager at Compassion and Choices. Welcome, Erica. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a guest on your show. Well, thank you for being a part of it. I am so interested in this topic. You know, you hear so many things out in media land and you're just not sure exactly what's accurate and what's true. So I figured let's go straight to the source to understand what medical aid in dying is and truly how that can be an option for someone um, to show compassion to somebody. So why don't you describe your role? Tell us about Compassion and Choices and how you came to do this work. Sure. Thanks for asking. So first off, a little bit about Compassion and Choices We're the oldest, largest, and most active national nonprofit dedicated exclusively to improving care and expanding options at the end of life. My role at Compassion and Choices is public outreach manager for Access Campaign, which is a massive bilingual effort to integrate medical aid and dying into the standard of care. And what that means is that people understand how California's End of Life Option Act works how to access it, and medical providers know how to have conversations about medical aid and dying with their patients, how the law works in practice, and support their patients who choose this option. And my interest in this ultimately stems from seeing my father face a difficult disease process and die in excruciating pain and discomfort in an ICU suffering two heart attacks during the last week of his life while all of his organs were shutting down. And unfortunately, my dad nor our family knew about advanced directives, post, or hospice. So my father suffered a death that was not at all aligned with his values and priorities. No, it's a real wake-up call when all this happens to realize how much you could do in in advance, you know? Yes, And how much needs to be done in order to make these kinds of emergencies run a little smoother. So, Absolutely. There's so much advanced care planning that you can um, participate in as conversations with your doctors and also with your family and loved ones. And really, after his death, it became personally important for me to educate people about their end-of-life options and especially personal for me to educate Spanish-speaking Latinos who are often excluded from this education. Wow, that's, that's really important. So can you explain sort of the history of this legislation in California and you know, talk about the main tenets of, of what's going on, how it all works, just 
you know, give us the, the layman's terms, basically. Sure, sure. So let me give you some background. Um, Senators Monning and Woke, along with Assemblymember Egmont Talamantes, introduced the bill in California. And while we were working on a grassroots campaign, Brittany Maynard, a young woman who lived in California, had moved to Oregon to access their law, their death with dignity law. Her story came along and it really served as a catalyst for the California campaign. She was only 29 years old and had to make the heavy decision to leave her family and friends in California to move to Oregon to ensure her wishes were honored and that she would be able to have a peaceful death. And so that really helped change our campaign from what we expected to be a five-year campaign to really only being a one-year campaign um, before we were able to have the bill passed and signed into law on October 5th. 2015 by Governor Brown, and it went into effect on June 9th, 2016. Now, the main tenets of the law are that an individual must be a California resident who's an adult of 18 years of age or older, terminally ill with a prognosis of six months or less to live, mentally capable of making their own medical decisions, And they must self-administer or self-ingest the aid in dying medication, although someone else can prepare the medication. And I'll explain a little bit more about that later. And um, the attending physician must also inform the person about their other end-of-life options, such as hospice. Uh, Two oral requests separated by a minimum of 15 days and one written request must be submitted So as you're hearing from me, it is a process um, and there's a lot of safeguards in place. And two physicians must confirm the eligibility of the patient to use the law. Two Mm -hmm. witnesses must attest to the voluntary nature of the individual's request and only one of them can be a relative. And 48 hours prior to ingestion, the patient must affirm his or her intention to use the medication and that they understand what it will do. Also, this law is voluntary for doctors and medical systems to participate along with the patient, whether or not they want to request the medication. So it's incredibly important if you think you might ever want this option that you talk to your doctor early and that you ask often about whether he or she is willing to prescribe to you under the law to ensure your wishes are honored and you have that supportive system that you need in order to access this. Um, Along with this, I do want to add some additional protections that are written into the law. Okay. The law specifically mandates that wills, insurance, contracts, and annuities are not affected if a qualified individual shortens their dying process by ingesting aid in dying medication. And the uh, law also specifically states that death resulting from self-administering aid in dying medication is not suicide or assisted suicide, uh, nor is this euthanasia, which people sometimes get confused about. Um, This is an individual who is actively dying and their disease is the cause of death. Um, The individual can choose whether or not to ingest the aid in dying medication as well instead of it being a third party administering. So they are fully in control throughout the whole process. And lastly, I want to add that the California Department of Public Health 
also provided additional guidelines recommending that doctors list the underlying disease as the cause of death on the death certificate. Okay. And that's, I mean, that's really good to know, actually, because I think people get confused with the legality of it. Yeah. Uh, It sounds like all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted when it comes to being eligible and obtaining the medication. So that's actually really good to know. Um, so tell, tell me what states it's legal in so far. Sure. So there's eight jurisdictions that have authorized medical aid in dying. Oregon was the first state to authorize medical aid in dying in 1997 by ballot initiative. Mm-hmm. Ten years later, in 2008, Washington State followed also by ballot initiative. In 2009, Montana became the first state to authorize medical aid in dying by court ruling. And in 2013, Vermont was the first state to pass legislation authorizing the practice. Uh, The movement experienced a huge win in California in 2015 through legislation. And Colorado was close behind with its successful ballot initiative in 2016, followed by Washington, D.C., which passed its law in 2016 as well. And earlier this year, Hawaii became the eighth jurisdiction with the governor signing Our Care, Our Choice Act in April of this year. Okay, so it's it's coming along, um, mostly Western states, it seems, but uh, slowly creeping towards the East, huh? Yep. Uh, so I'm actually curious, you know, what are the top reasons someone would choose this? Is it loss of control, pain, loss of independence? You know, what are the top reasons, do you think? Sure, that's a really great question. And um, often people think it is pain, but pain is only a piece of it. Generally, loss of autonomy is the primary reason for seeking medical aid and dying. Suffering can take many forms for many people, which is why pain isn't the primary consideration. Right, that makes sense. And... And generally, what age range is it? I mean, I, I would think it would be, you know, more of the elderly population. But these days, so many younger folks are getting sick so early. So um, what is the, the central population for this? Sure. You are right in the sense that it is mainly adults over the age of 65. In California, the average has been um, 73 in 2016 and 74 in 2017. So right around 74 But people accessing this option have been as young as Brittany, who was 29, and age is not a qualifier. And that's just so young. Gosh, you know, to have to think about these issues. And, you know, in that line of thinking, is there a particular disease or illness that overtakes the stats? Like, you know, is cancer the winner or maybe ALS or Parkinson's? You know, what's the the biggest disease that captures these, these patients? Yeah. In California, the people who access this law overwhelmingly have cancer. Mm-hmm. However, people with all sorts of terminal illnesses have requested medical aid and dying from ALS to respiratory ailments. The thing all of these have in common is that people can ingest, self-ingest the medication mm-hmm. and that they have the mental capacity to make medical decisions. As such, those with dementia and Alzheimer's are ineligible to request medical aid and dying. 
those who are disabled are not prevented from medical aid and dying as we want everyone to have agency over their end of life care, but disability itself is not a qualifying factor. So real quick, for instance, with ALS, eventually your ability to swallow goes away, right? So do you have to just make sure that this is an option before your body goes too far down the road, basically? Correct. So with ALS, you know, somebody would need to be making that decision maybe earlier in their disease process than someone with cancer who would retain that ability to chew and swallow or um, ability to hold a cup to their mouth to swallow. And so those are all factors that someone needs to keep in mind for the process of putting in their request for the medication and moving through the waiting period. And I know you mentioned Alzheimer's as being uh, not an option, but if they're early onset and they're aware of what's going to be happening in the future, is that an option or is that off the table? It's off the table. However, Compassion and Choices does offer a free dementia provision that people can add to their existing advanced directive. So if they do become incapacitated, (laughs) it can help direct their healthcare proxy to stop feeding and administering fluids to the person or prevent other unwanted medical treatment. Okay. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm curious about that because my brother had dementia and, you know, eventually just lost most of his mental faculty. So I was just curious about that, that kind of option for people who lose mental acuity, you know. Um, And are, are both candidates in hospice or palliative care already, or how does this all work with hospice? Yes. So in California, about 84% are enrolled in hospice or receiving palliative care. And in Oregon, where the law has been in place for 20 years, 91% are enrolled in hospice or receiving palliative care. Compassion and Choices encourages those seeking this option to enroll in hospice for the spiritual and emotional support they offer patients and their loved ones. Um, Along with this, ideally, the hospice has a supportive policy, which allows its staff to be present at the time of self-ingestion of the Mm -hmm. aid and dying medication. So the patient and the family can have that continued support that hospice offers up to the last moments of life. Okay. And hospice will, you know, they're somewhat separate from the situation in that they're not going to prescribe the medication and whatnot. It's, you still have to go through the whole procedure of several different doctors and whatnot, correct? Um, that's somewhat correct. So someone, if their primary physician is the hospi- hospice medical director, let's say if it's a medical model for the hospice, they can put in the request through the hospice, mm-hmm. but most would put it through their attending physician, which would be the one primarily in charge of the individual's disease. Mm-hmm. And then just curious, out of curiosity, what is the actual medication that they take normally and how is it ingested? Is it pills? Is it liquid? Sure. So the type and dosage of aid and dying medication the doctor prescribes for the terminally ill person can vary with each individual. Some factors the doctor takes into consideration include the patient's illness and medications they're currently taking. Um, There's several medication protocols 
and combinations of medications that are used that range in price. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is Secanol, which is the best known and also the most expensive due to price gouging uh, by the pharmaceutical company that owns the medication. And that usually costs about $4,000 to $5,000. So wow. there's, yeah, so there's been <laughs> other medication protocols that have been developed and luckily there's much less expensive options that range only in the like several hundred. So right around starting right around $400. So no matter what medication is prescribed, ultimately mm -hmm. the terminally ill person self-administers. So they're the one self-ingesting the medication by drinking a small quantity of liquid solution, about mm -hmm. four ounces. Okay. Uh, the individual usually falls asleep within 20 minutes and usually dies painlessly and peacefully within an hour or two. Okay. I, I also want to add, though, um, that although the person must self-administer and self-ingest it, um, a person other than the patient can prepare the medication so they can empty the capsules and produce the slurry, mix it into the liquid and okay. hand that to the patient. Okay. Okay. So they don't have to be completely alone during this experience. They Correct. can actually have family members in the room and, and have that support that they need in the end. Exactly. And that's why we find it so important for hospice to be available up to the very end for that continued support, not only with the medication, but that spiritual, emotional support for those around the patient and for that patient in that moment. And just out of curiosity, does insurance or Medicare cover any of this type of stuff or? Yes. So it can be covered by insurance. Not all insurances cover it, though. So we encourage people to check with their own insurance providers to find out if their plan covers the cost. Mm -hmm. In California, Medi-Cal covers the cost of the office visits and medication. Mm -hmm. However, Medicare and VA do not cover aid and dying medication or appointments because okay. of a 1997 federal law that prohibits federal dollars spent on medical aid and dying, which was enacted out of unrealized fear that people would be coerced into using the law. So... Uh -huh. um, so in California, just to give you like some explanation for Medi-Cal being able to cover this, um, California segregates state funds from federal dollars in order to cover both the visits and also the medication. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so, so there is possible coverage, which, which is helpful. Yes. And, you know, have you witnessed any of these? Have you had any imp impactful experiences while well, you've been working with this nonprofit and getting into these issues? I've had the honor of meeting and working with some terminally ill people who are storytellers with us. I have not witnessed an aid and dying death, but I've learned from these terminally ill people willingly sharing their experiences publicly, um, how much peace of mind having this option brings them. These are individuals potentially facing a difficult and painful dying process, and they are filled with gratitude that they have the option of medical aid and dying, which allows them to live their remaining days to the fullest, knowing they can choose a peaceful death if their suffering becomes unbearable. This is a personal choice, and having the medication provides a huge sense of relief and control. And this is something I commonly hear from people who are seeking this option. I mean, because in the end, they don't have to take it if they aren't up for it. This is just having the option to have the medication. 
Absolutely right. In reality, right? And so, um, and it's obviously well thought out because it takes so much time to, for the process to unroll. So, right. It's not a spontaneous decision. This is a whole process. And that's why the safeguards are in place. These are people who find relief from having the medication on hand or knowing this is an option for them. And it means a lot for them to have that sense of control at the end of life. Yeah, they've lost so much other control. So to have a little bit of some, a little bit of control somewhere probably gives them a lot of relief, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, I actually ask some interesting questions to every guest who comes on here. And I always get some, some, I get varied answers from them and I love hearing them. So one of my questions is, what's your vision of the afterlife look like? Because in your line of work, you know, you deal with death and compassionate care and, end of life. So I assume you must be thinking about this, but maybe not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's actually a really great question. I mean, I've thought about it, but I honestly don't have a vision of what the afterlife looks like. I'm I'm hoping it's very enjoyable, but I don't have a vision for it. Okay. And and that's a totally valid answer, you know, because it's, it is the complete unknown. It is the great unknown. So um, but I, I like to believe something, something positive is going on in the beyond, you know, um, and then so far in your life, you know, what is the most important piece of wisdom that you've learned thus far from your experiences? And especially, you know, having lost your father in such a brutal way and seeing that I feel like people who've come near death, really, they're more sensitive to this, this kind of wisdom, you know? Yeah, I would agree with that. Once you've um, experienced someone close to you having a really difficult difficult and um, painful dying process, you really get clarity on how important it is for people to discuss and plan uh, around death and dying with their loved ones. And um, what I've really learned is how important it is to become educated on your end-of-life rights and options the ability to go into a doctor's office and talk about what honoring your end of life wishes looks like is incredibly important. Physicians are often not trained on how to start these conversations with their patients. And unfortunately, until medical culture changes, we need to do our part to ensure our wishes are heard. Our doctors are on board to support us and our families and loved ones are there to advocate for us if we um, become incapable of voicing our decisions for ourselves. So really planning ahead and having these conversations openly and honestly with both our loved ones and our doctors is just so important. Yeah, no, I, I've done a few of these episodes now and that seems to be the absolute common thread from talking to a hospice director to a funeral director to a priest. And I actually had a chat with um, a patient advocate this, you know, this morning and the, you know, standing up for yourself and voicing your needs seems to be the number one priority, you know, and just, you just have to fight for yourself and make it known what you need and want. And absolutely. Yeah. And, I don't think people do that enough for themselves. You know, at the end of life, I think they tend to give up. And we're so afraid about talking about it early in life. We put it off and we put it off. And so really having those conversations early, getting comfortable with the topic and 
speaking openly with your doctor as well. So they know that it's okay to approach the subject with you as well. No, I think that makes complete sense. Yeah. So thank you so much for giving us the rundown on, on this legislation and medical aid in dying. Cause it's, it can be really confusing uh, all the different information out there. So I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and letting people know what the options are that you don't just have to suffer. Absolutely. And if people want more information, they can visit our website at www.compassionandchoices.org slash California. Yeah. And I, I also personally thought Diane Reem's book on my own was very well done and spoke quite frankly about this issue since she lost her husband to Parkinson's and he suffered quite a bit. So that's also a good read to get a little more information on her advocacy as well. So yeah, well, thank you so much and good luck with all that you're doing. It's really important work. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you once again for inviting me to speak on your show. I'm Michelle Mathai, and you've been listening to Written on Water. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until soon.